0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. 66 million years ago the world was changed forever when an asteroid only the size of a mountain struck Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. It could happen again, any day. So what could we do to stop it? The primary current theory for what ended the dinosaurs was a massive asteroid, and it wasn't the first or last time one struck our world with Earth-shattering consequences. Indeed, current theory also says a truly massive asteroid or dwarf planet early in our planet's history struck us, and threw much of our crust and mantle into orbit, debris from which later formed our atypically large moon. When thinking of calamities, it is worth remembering that we ourselves probably would not exist except for that moon-generating event, and we'd still be rodents if not for that one that got the dinosaurs, so they can be beneficial for everyone but the folks on the receiving end though that might not be the case for more advanced civilizations who may consider an incoming asteroid quite a boon. Those two events, the Dinosaur Killer and the Moon Maker, are hardly the only major impacts we've had. The latter was so enormous there is no crater for it, it erased any events before it occurred, but we have hundreds of major craters we've found thus far, and more doubtless that we will find or that were erased by time. We have a crater in South Africa, estimated at 2 billion years of age, that is twice as big as the one from 66 million years ago that struck the Yucatan, and 3 more with craters over 100 kilometers wide, with dozens in the tens of kilometers width. The largest known event in human times was about a million years ago in Ghana in Africa, and left a crater 10 kilometers wide, and another larger one in Kazakhstan also around a million years back at 14 kilometers. To give a scale, we usually say the energy released to form a crater roughly goes with the cube of the diameter, and that a 1 megaton nuke would leave a crater about a kilometer wide. So one 10 kilometers wide would be the equivalent of 10 cubed or 1000 megatons, essentially our Cold War arsenal, whereas one 100 kilometers wide would be 100 cubed or a million megaton blast. Those two about a million years back could each have been strong enough to cause major climatic events. Since then we've had many more that would dwarf a typical nuclear explosion, and while hardly civilization toppling events at a planetary scale, such an impact in modern times would likely be ruinous for the nation it landed in, and potentially have disastrous economic consequences planet-wide. So they are not rare, though the bigger you go the less common they are, and they are a thing to worry over, particularly as there are probably over a million objects in our asteroid belt alone big enough to cause those kinds of impacts that would be civilization toppling and thousands that could cause mass extinction. It is also our statistics game. It is unlikely that anything that would even wipe out a city, let alone a planet, would strike Earth in the next thousand years, but not super unlikely either. We are not talking lottery odds, especially for city destroyers. We'll be talking today about how to detect and prevent or destroy such asteroids coming toward Earth. We also need to remember that this is the same technology that can permit malicious asteroid attack, someone nudging an asteroid into a collision course with Earth, or even some accident in asteroid mining operations causing scatter collisions and perturbations that nudge many objects onto dangerous new trajectories. Now asteroids are not an ideal attack method because they are slow and easy to detect compared to something like a rod from God, or its big brother, the relativistic kill missile, Nor would you tend to miss someone setting off the sorts of explosive or propellant needed to move one onto an attack vector, but it is an option and moreover, any number of asteroid mining projects could accidentally put one on a dangerous trajectory. Key notion though is that we can't assume luck will protect us, because even ignoring that asteroids hit us from time to time naturally, a civilization moving into space opens up many new avenues for increased space debris and collision dangers we will need to defend from. The first key to defense of course is knowing where the threat is. Early detection is key to asteroid defense because their sheer speed makes it easy to miss them until it is too late to redirect them. In general an asteroid impact crater will be ten times as wide as the asteroid that caused it because of the enormous kinetic energy released by the collision. Asteroids vary in speed of impact but usually move in the tens of kilometers per second range and would cover the distance from the Moon to the Earth in under a day. Timelines for such an object being spotted at interplanetary distances and reaching us might be around a year, but we need to see it clearly enough to know its trajectory, though we currently still haven't spotted most asteroids in the belt that are considerably larger than a kilometer across. Anything over a kilometer across represents a major threat to us, likely to leave millions dead and trillions of dollars lost, and it would be very hard for us to spot nowadays. Such an object a kilometer wide would be 3 million times dimmer than the Moon, at the same distance from us as the Moon is. That would be about 16 dimmer in terms of apparent magnitude than the Moon, which is at a negative 13 at full Moon. For astronomical magnitude, every 5 is equal to a factor of 100 in brightness, and that would make it about a 3, so it would be noticeably visible to the naked eye, but hardly bright, plenty of nighttime stars are 3s. An object's apparent brightness drops off with a square of distance, so one 10 times further away will be 10 squared or 100 times dimmer, or 5 orders of astronomical magnitude dimmer. So that same asteroid we mentioned a moment ago, that was decently naked eye visible out at the Moon's distance, would be an 8 at that point, 10 times further away and visible with binoculars. The asteroid belt is around a thousand times farther from us than the Moon and so is a million times dimmer or fifteen orders of magnitude dimmer, but it is actually worse than that because we see them by reflected light from the Sun, which also falls off with the square of distance, and the belt is much further from the Sun than Earth is. Space is big and these things are dim and one headed toward Earth is not going to stand out much until it's too close and we have little time to react. Now we could build much bigger telescopes in space and more of them, see our Mega Telescopes episode, but this relies on passive detection and these asteroids have their light all scattered around the solar spectrum, like most objects reflecting light. It is much easier to pick up an object shining dimly but in a specific narrow frequency than one shining brightly in a white spectrum, and this is the basic notion of active detection you blast out a rapid pulse of some tight frequency of light, usually radio or microwave rather than visible, and that tends to reflect off the sort of substance you are looking for, and see what scatters back and with the time of return and direction you've got your ping, that is essentially radar. You can also do very wide image shots from multiple angles and have a computer come back and crunch the numbers for matchups, which is an approach you could use with ambient light like solar illumination or the infrared blackbody radiation given off by the object. Indeed, for the latter, the peak wavelength of infrared will also give a fairly good idea how far away it is from the Sun, as that correlates to the temperature of the object. Both of these approaches benefit hugely from having lots of detection gear in space and not just in orbit around Earth. You could also put them at Earth's Lagrange point or any number of other orbits to give yourself a much better resolution and detection capacity. You need to do this as you go out in space too because our atmosphere protects us from small junk which is vastly more common than big objects, and things in space do not get that protection and can be trashed by a fist-sized one kilogram meteor that would have been torched by our atmosphere. Indeed about 25 million hit Earth every year, nearly once a second, to the tune of about 15 million kilograms a year. And keep in mind there's nothing special in this regard about Earth. Our gravity well does make us get hit a bit more often than some random bit of empty space of the same volume but not that much. Space is full of dangerous stuff and will be more so as we start littering the place with our own junk. So you have a very good motivation to put up that detection and monitoring system if you want to build a robust presence in space, and that presence makes it much easier to build that detection system. Monitoring is important too because keeping track of all these objects helps avoid them, not to mention that if you check in and see that one isn't where it's supposed to be, that means something struck it or perturbed it which would cause lots of other stuff to be flying around on potential new collision courses, and it's easier to find those if you can calculate from where they got nudged or blasted loose. A future humanity in space needs detection and monitoring, and can do it easier in many respects than we can now, but what about now? What would we do if we picked one up? There is a persistent myth that nuking asteroids would not be effective, But the first rule of life in general is, if brute force isn't working, you're not using enough. Yes, you could turn an asteroid into sand and golf balls by hitting it with enough nukes, though a really big asteroid would require several times more nukes than currently exist on Earth, and if blasting apart were your only strategy, you would have to blast into pieces that small to be sure the atmosphere could burn them up. Because if the Earth was going to be struck by the Rock of Gibraltar, peppering instead with a billion hurtling Volkswagen's would actually be worse this approach to asteroid management would also leave you having to track and avoid all the shrapnel you created. A far more efficient and tidier way to use nukes against asteroids is to detect an asteroid collision course with Earth early, very early, and nudge it onto a slightly different path. The high energy radiation from a nuke will vaporize or ionize a very thin layer of one side of the asteroid, trillions of tiny explosions pushing on the asteroid like rockets. If we approximate the asteroid as a sphere, The optimal detonation placement to yield the greatest nudge per nuke is actually about an asteroid radius away from the surface. Distributing the pressure over so much of the surface greatly increases the chance the asteroid will stay in big pieces, which are easier to track and avoid later, after they miss Earth. And the nudge you need isn't very much, relatively speaking, if your network detects at a distance and defends quickly. Traveling 1 meter per second for 70 days, you'll cover a distance equal to Earth's radius which means that if you can change the velocity of an incoming object by 1 meter per second, 70 days before it hits Earth, you'll have saved the Earth, even if in a somewhat uncinematic way. The real issue with using nukes, at least at the moment, is that warheads are not terribly fast, sturdy, or lightweight items except in terms of how much punch they pack. You cannot just load 100 megaton nuclear warheads onto a shuttle or rocket and fly them into space. They are also somewhat delicate items, in that the Detonation Trigger is a high precision device, the design of which challenged world-class engineers and scientists on the Manhattan Project. It's even more difficult to design and build one that will survive the shaking of a high-G launch into space and still function reliably when it reaches its target. Contrary to what movies show, blowing up a nuke will not set it off, it will only break it and make it non-functional, so you cannot send a barrage of simultaneous nukes at a target unless you are incredibly precise about the timing. Otherwise the radiation blast or tons of high velocity debris from the first nuke will disable the others. But just getting your nuke up even to high orbit is no small trick either. Warheads aren't light but ICBMs are downright heavy, what with all that rocket fuel, and are not designed to be launched from orbit. Trying to rapidly retool and refuel ICBMs to be carried into orbit on a rocket, then launch from there so they could reach something out in high orbit, or the moon, is not a quick or easy thing to do. There is a reason we use phrases like this isn't rocket science and this isn't brain surgery, and rapidly retooling an ICBM and an orbital launch rocket to do a job neither was meant for, or rocket surgery, is considerably harder. So if we want to nuke an asteroid, we need to build those nukes from the get-go with that in mind, and we should be putting them up in space, so we aren't need to deal with orbital launch energy costs or weather windows scrubbing that launch. This kind of precaution carries the small problem that some folks are squeamish about having atomic bombs whizzing around in orbit overhead, and that both warheads and rockets need lots of constant maintenance to work which is hard in space. The other problem is that you have to fly the rocket there and they do have rather long flight times, again early detection is the key since it gives you more time to get your bomb ready for the flight and actually fly it there. Some asteroids are just a big ball of gravel loosely held together by gravity, while others are more of a slab you can shatter, and we call the impact disruption energy the kinetic energy needed to shatter an asteroid and remove at least half its mass if we just whack it with another object like if we shoved another smaller asteroid or space station or spaceship in its way that it plowed into. Part of this energy is the shattering energy, and is generally proportional to the mass of the asteroid, but you also have the gravitational energy in there, because it does have gravity and if you shatter it the bits can just fall back down and reform, so you need to shatter and blow it apart. In general for smaller rocks that shattering energy is much higher than the gravitational energy. Larger ones though are gravity dominated. What we're seeing here is that while yes, nukes can absolutely get the job done, again with sufficient brute force you can get almost any job done, they are not ideal, especially now. Down the road, and with far better detection, an earthbound asteroid wouldn't be such a world-shaking calamity, after all it is a bunch of free metal already headed your way you can mine and harvest on the cheap. High-tech civilizations might just regard an incoming asteroid as free stuff, but that is a good way off, so how about more short term? If not nukes, what is the alternative? One innovative suggestion was to fly a ship out to spray paint the asteroid to be highly reflective, so that reflecting sunlight will push it like a solar sail off course, but this probably isn't practical with anything but smaller ones and very early detection. However, it's not a bad approach if you can add more light pressure with a laser, and we have often discussed using lasers to push spaceships up to high speeds, as we looked at in interstellar laser highways. You could also maneuver that asteroid around to some place you wanted it, like into the Lagrange Point to serve as a nice base for a space station. Of course if you have lasers that powerful and if time were limited, you could skip the reflective paint job and just hit the asteroid with the laser directly. This would produce significantly less thrust, but it will at least produce the same surface vaporization rocket effect as the radiation from a nuke, but in a slower, more controlled version that's less likely to messily shadow the asteroid. The big benefit is that light is near instant, even over the vast tracts of interplanetary space it gets to its targets in minutes not days or weeks. You can also keep at it, it's not a single expenditure of energy like a bomb. Nukes might seem like they have a lot of energy in them and they do as atomic energy is far denser than chemical energy, but a megaton H-bomb still only has the energy equivalent to what the United States power consumption is over a couple of hours. So if you plug that into a laser and kept it on the asteroid, it would be delivering a dozen megatons of zap to that asteroid every day, and delivering it precisely in mere minutes for when you flipped it on. Remember, you're not trying to simply zap the thing and blow it apart, rather you're cooking or blading off its surface with a more diffuse beam to act as propellant to shove it aside. You basically are shining a powerful flashlight on it to push it aside, using its own heated matter as the propellant. We've discussed parallel tricks to this for snatching comets in from deep space to help provide water for tail-forming and artificial space habitats. Your laser provides the energy and the struck object provides the propellant that energy superheats. Now I like this method for a couple of reasons. First, you can't exactly plug the plant's power grid into a big laser, our atmosphere is kind of in the way. But space is a great place for renewable energy, namely solar panels, that never have to worry about clouds or nighttime. And we talked before, in our Power Satellites episode, about how handy it is to get power this way and beam it down as microwaves to Earth, as diffuse masers, the microwave variety of laser. Indeed it is on my short list of things likely to kick off major space industry as our energy sector is a multi-trillion dollar one, so moving into space gives us huge resources for other space projects to piggyback on. But you could easily devote part of this power supply to such lasers to occasionally vaporize more mundane space debris or push ships away from Earth to our various colonies. Lasers are also easier to secure against theft and misuse than nukes lingering in orbit or on the moon. So that would be my preferred approach to asteroid defense, but we have many and what they all rely on ultimately is early detection and a robust presence in space, which also gets all of your eggs out of one basket in case another moonmaker or dino killer heads our way. Ultimately, your best defense against asteroids is not an individual system like nukes or lasers, but simply that robust push for space development. The best way to protect ourselves from threats from space is to expand ever-outward into space. We'll be talking more about the uses of asteroids in the coming months as we continue our new series, Becoming an Interplanetary Species, and we just had our second episode of that come out this week, looking at colonizing cislunar space. For those of you who are subscribed to Nebula, our new streaming service, you already had a chance to catch today's episode as an early release, and while I've enjoyed putting our mid-month bonus episodes up there a couple months early, I have decided for now to switch away from doing that in favor of just releasing all our future episodes on Nebula a couple days early and ad-free. If you'd like to catch all of SFA's episodes early and without ads, or see any of the other great content from our sister channels on Nebula, you can sign up for Nebula today. Or you can get it for free by instead signing up for CuriosityStream, who's partnering with us to bring you the best education videos out there. CuriosityStream has excellent educational content of their own, and they are running a 26% discount if you use the link in the description. That's a great deal since it means you get a year of both CuriosityStream and Nebula for less than $15, and helps support this show and a lot of other educational content which is what CuriosityStream and Nebula are all about. And again you get a year of both for less than $15 by using the link in the episode's description. So as mentioned we are continuing our look at becoming an interplanetary species, and we'll start October off with episode 3 as we look at returning to the Moon and staying there. But there's more to come before then and this Thursday we'll be taking a look at the future of fission, as we celebrate the 6th anniversary of the show. Then the week after that we'll be back to the Fermi Paradox series to look at the phosphorus scarcity problem with life evolving, then close the month out with our livestream Q&A on Sunday, September 27th, 4pm Eastern Time. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas.